Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. It's an absolute pleasure to have you join us for this episode. And the question I've got for you today is how lucky are you feeling? Now, that may be a rather odd question to ask at the beginning of an episode, but it turns out that luck is a lot more about what you do with it than whether you have it in the first place. I'm joined in today's episode by Andy Nairn, founder of, guess what, Lucky Generals, who's written a book about luck called Go Luck Yourself. 40 Ways to Stack the Odds in Your Favour. It's an absolutely brilliant read, and I was dying to catch up with Andy and find out where the idea came from from the book, how he started the agency with his co-founders, Lucky Generals, and what we can learn from this wonderful book about luck, or more importantly, what you do with it. So this is a great conversation. Let's get into it. Here is Andy Nan. So Andy, it's a delight to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Uncensored CMO. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's good fun, man. And, uh, and, and congratulations, let me start. Congratulations on the new book as well. Thank you. Yeah, that's been a sort of a, a funny undertaking um, in the middle of lockdown. I actually started it right at the, at the beginning when it kind of looked as if we'd all have spare time on our hands and I was worried that I might get a bit <laughs> bored, which obviously that's turned out to be a terrible bit of um, planning and forecasting on my part. But by that stage, it was too late. I was already sort of committed to doing it. So, oh, I uh, love that. Yeah. It was, so, need... it was so funny, wasn't it? Because rather back at the beginning of lockdown, we were all thinking, what on earth are we going to do? Yeah. We're going to have a commute. Yeah. Like, you know, we've lost half our business. Like, we're going to have this time in our hands. Everyone's yeah. getting furloughed. They're yeah. going to be sat on their thumbs. You know, and, and, and there must have been a few people that thought, I know, I'll go and write a book, you know. Yeah, it was very <laughs> foolish. And then in some ways, it was turned out to be a really good thing. And actually, actually, that's one of the themes of the book, something that can turn out that looks on first hand like it's a bit of, you know, it's a bad thing. You know, the fact that you you know you've got a terrible deadline that that's really what made me write it I've you know I've had all these years to write this book and I never would have done it so it took a global pandemic to force <laughs> me to uh, get down to knuckling down well, well we'll get into that a bit later because because uh, you know I, I think uh, lucky lockdown was it was an interesting chapter mm. of yours wasn't it so we'll we'll come on to that but that's fascinating so just for the for the listeners out there give us the brief introduction to Andy your journey to here and, and, and why did you set up this agency called Lucky Jack? I grew up in the middle of nowhere in the Scottish borders so pretty much as far away from bright lights of Soho that you can possibly ever imagine and I went to I didn't really know what I wanted to do you know for the rest of my life so I, I did I studied law at Edinburgh just because I, I felt that, that was kind of quite a broad degree and it was a good one to have and then I could decide later on down the line now I sort of pretty early figured out that I didn't want to do law as a profession because it's potentially quite sort of conservative but I, I like the idea of you know I really enjoy putting a case forward for a client and you know assembling the facts creating an argument you know trying to persuade someone else of the merits of this argument and and when I told one of my tutors that, he said, oh, if you, if you like that, but you don't want to work in such a conservative industry, how about the advertising? And I'd, I'd never thought of it before, but it was an incredibly lucky, uh, you know, it was one of many sort of breaks that I had that conversation with this chap, which sort of pointed me, you know, a little bit later into the hands of an ad, ad agency. You, you had much better advice than me, because in the same scenario as you, I got told to become an actuary. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, you don't want I'm just, someone. I'm so glad that. I did not follow that advice. Well, the, <laughs> no, you know, but no, no offense to actuaries listening out there, by the way. But yeah, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have succeeded in that one. 
Do you know, there's a funny thing as well. The guy who gave me this advice sort of seemed to take that advice himself a little bit later. So he was, you know, this is a, a law, my law professor, but he jacked in the law quite soon afterwards and became an internationally best-selling author. So he, he sold a, a lot wow. more books than I have. He's a guy called Alexander McCall Smith. I mean, he's literally one of yeah, the best-selling yeah. authors in the yeah. world. So I like to think that Whoa. I played a little part in his success story as well. <laughs> now, now that's luck both ways, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So I stumbled into advertising, really. I got that advice. So I thought, well, I'll try, you know, applying to ad agencies and, you know, got the inevitable, you know, lots of knockbacks like everybody does. And then again, I sort of fell into an agency called Abbott Mead Vickers, managed to scramble through. I'd, I'd applied as an account handler just because that was the only job I'd really sort of heard of. Uh, and they, right at the beginning, sort of said, actually, we don't think you'd be, you know, I mean, I'm sure they said it m- more kindly than this pretty much said that I don't think you'd be very good at that have you thought about strategy and of course I really didn't know what that meant but again really grateful that they pointed me in that direction because that's what I've been doing ever since I mean you say you fell into it but presumably there was a little bit more than just falling into it that that, that involved getting the job in the first place well hopefully and I think that's the way that you know luck tends to work isn't it there's I guess there's a certain amount of you know talent and you know hard work that goes into it but then you do need a bit of luck you need to be able to take those opportunities and so in my case it was I suppose listening to what the my my tutor what Alexander McCall Smith had said and then taking the good advice of the people who know more about it than I do when they sort of steered me in the direction of this other career I'm pretty open-minded thing about things like that you know rather than having a fixed view of I must do this you know if someone who seems to know what they're talking about has got a better idea then I'm, I'm, I'm all ears and again that sort of has played well for me yeah having just finished your book actually I was thinking about kind of what would my lucky story be and it's funny actually because I remember um I remember about 15 years ago in my career much much earlier on I had this idea when I was working for a, a big soft drink company called Britvic and I wanted to create a a new innovation team that basically took all the small brands and operated them like a like its own little company as it were and had my own sales team and marketing team and and you know we were given permission to kind of do the sort of rebellious stuff that, that that you know the bigger brands couldn't get away with and it was it was one of the best times in my career but i remember being quite upset because i i'd come up with the idea and i'd pitched it in to the board and i'd gone through quite a few hoops and jumps and business cases and all that kind of thing and then i remember quite a few people after me said damn it john you're just so lucky and i'm like what, what do you mean i'm lucky like oh you know right place right time and then and then someone made this comment and and, and actually someone i admire a great deal actually said the same idea had been pitched seven times in the previous eight years and it was only when i pitched it that that it happened and and it was being viewed as luck and so i was saying okay well you know, luck, luck doesn't account for the fact that I personally met every individual board member in, in the weeks running up to the board presentation. I, I, I made sure that all their objections were taken on, you know, that I'd listened to them and responded to them. I built a business case. I'd, I'd created, you know, lot, I'd, I'd worked so hard to get allies in the company that would help me get, get it away. And I'd, I'd read lots of books on how to do it well and prepared, you know, very, very well. And it was sort of, but it really, it really kind of, it's funny how these little things people say just really hit home. But, you know, although, yes, you know, the, the timing had to be right, there's a huge amount of work. And, of course. and you know, take, taking my, taking the luck, you know, taking the opportunity really as it presents de- itself. De- definitely. I think that's the way that, you know, the, the, in certainly in the West, you know, luck is seen as a bit of an insult, isn't it? You know, and mm. you know people are affronted because, as you say, you've worked hard and you've yeah. you know, had a good idea in the first place. And so I think it is not the enemy. I don't think you know we have to uh, make a false 
polarization by by saying that they're you know it's either lucky or it's hard working and talented I, I think usually it's a mixture of all of those things but but then I do think it's helpful to in the way that you've also appreciated that there was a, maybe a little element of luck that you had done all this hard work yourself but that you know other people might have also done you know sort of you know come up with similar ideas to to realize how lucky you are I think is a really helpful dynamic because then you yeah. you're less likely to be arrogant or complacent about it because you realize wow that you know I have come up with a great idea I have worked hard for it but it could have gone either way and I'm going to because that makes you grasp the opportunity more if you realize wow I've been lucky to get this opportunity you're more likely to make the most of it if you just think you're brilliant and and all the all your ideas are down to your own you know magnificent (laughs) talents then I think you usually come a cropper later you do you're absolutely right one of the best books I've read was the follow-up to good to great uh, great by choice mm-hmm. and one of the concepts there one of the things I thought was fascinating about that book is I remember the author looks at 20 years of data and he asked himself the question are successful companies just luckier mm-hmm. and and he actually went to the effort of, of looking back over the most successful I think it was Standard & Poor's companies versus the average. I, I think it was Standard & Poor's he was looking at. And he actually itemized every event that happened in the category, like, you know, the category grew or there was a tragic event or there was, there was something external that affected the company's chances. And he actually worked out whether there was good luck or bad luck for each of the successful companies versus the average companies. And interestingly, he found there was absolutely zero difference. So successful companies were absolutely no more or less likely to have luck as you know in inverted commas but what he concluded which i thought was really interesting was that when when they faced bad luck they were better able to cope with it and when the good luck moment did arrive they were better able to capitalize on it and later in the book he talks about firing bullets and then cannonballs where he he says actually the successful companies they realized the, the, the luck of hitting the target on something and then they all get behind it rather than just going on to the next thing and stuff like that. But I thought that was quite interesting. It's sort of what you do with the luck, isn't it? That's very much so. You know, yeah. So important. Yeah. You know, lots of companies have got amazing assets that they're very lucky to have, but then don't do anything with them. I mean, you know, data being a classic one, you know, lots yeah. of companies sitting on gold mines of data, but not using it. And, and as you say, quite often, good luck is, is really how you respond to bad luck. You know, and we've all had quite a lot of that over the last 18 months. And you can sort of see the companies yes. who are thriving are the ones that have, um, you know, been resilient. And despite, you know, the situation that we've all been plunged into, have found a positive way through it all. You're right, actually. So many companies have almost thrived under the under the conditions, haven't they? It's really been accelerant to their, you know, to their business. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I think that's something that the Eastern cultures are very strong at. You know, there's a lot of you know, without getting into all the boring sort of philosophical details, there's a lot of Eastern psychology is uh, and mythology and you know, spirituality is about you know the the how how you deal with something that initially looks like bad luck, but you turn it into good luck, and it's it's often quite a a, a thin line. I mean, I think the other thing that that has marked out companies who've thrived in this environment are people who already who are already sort of clear about what they stood for and what they were doing. Um, and had a had a plan in the first place so you can plan for mm. luck as well i think the people that have really sort of found it difficult are you know trying to work out who you are in the middle of a crisis is like uh that's a really <laughs> yes. difficult situation to be in if you already know who you are and then it just becomes a question of right okay we we know these these are our values we know this is what our purpose in life is all about therefore how should we respond to this crisis is much easier the, the interesting my own personal experience last last year when in, in the middle of the in the middle of the pandemic as it started 
was was you can either look at a bad luck event on a big scale like the pandemic and feel like it's been done to you and you have no control over it or you can go actually i am in control and i i'm i'm going to find the way out of this and i'm going to you know take take ownership of it and 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 get yourself out so i think it's a lot of it is about taking ownership rather than take it's very easy i guess what i'm saying it's very easy to find an excuse like i'm unlucky quote unquote sort of thing rather than sort of taking ownership for for for, for the luck itself definitely and both both those types of luck exist you know if you think about you know the simplest metaphor of all you know playing a game of cards you can't do anything with the 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 cards that you're dealt that is a given you know that's the equivalent of the pandemic that's been you know visited upon you so if you've got a lousy set of cards that's not great but what you can do is play the best possible game of cards with those cards and that's really what business is about most of the time isn't it we have to you know some companies have got different advantages um over others you know they might be a big company with an, an incredible history and distribution base and innovation pipeline and and you know you might be the little guy with a fraction of their resources but you sort of there's no point in really bemoaning all of that that is the situation that you're in now how can you play those cards yeah. to the best of your advantage and quite often it's about embracing the fact that you have that you're either smaller or that you have some disadvantage and sort of saying we're going to run with this and just make that the thing that we are you know, famous for. I think that's the thing that came through in your book, actually, that, that really struck me was how kind of relentlessly positive you are, you were in, in, in the book and the way, whatever the type of luck is, and we'll, we'll get into in a second all the different types of luck and bad luck events, how you turn them all to your advantage and make the most of them rather than, again, feeling like, oh, no, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to give up because, you know, this has happened or that has happened. That, that's right. I mean, I think that is the secret without being sort of naive and not being alert to problems, because, of course, that is important too. Um, dwelling on problems is not particularly helpful. And, you know, as we as we probably all tell, tell our teenagers, I've got a couple of them, you know, it's <laughs> about not moping and not being, you know, sort of not, not overemphasizing the you know, difficulties and see if you, what can you do about them? How can you, as you say, get some agency um, over this and, and put the problem into your own hands and do something about it? Yeah. So listen, we're going to jump into the book in a second because I'm really excited to do that. And we're uh, and what I thought we might do is, is do a bit of a lucky dip and uh, <laughs> just kind of, <laughs> sorry. But I like you, it. You, you, you've given me the creative idea, so I'm going to stick with it. But, but just before I do, how did Lucky Generals come about? And t- tell me the story with that and, and where did you land on the name? Because obviously the la- name is pretty important to the whole story. So um, I'll, I'll skip the early details. So after getting into advertising, I did what everyone does, you know, work your way up various different agencies, in my case, both in the UK and then in the US. And then and then sort of fast forward 20 or so years and, and I was working with two really good friends by this stage, Helen Calcraft and Danny Booktail. And we loved working with each other, really enjoyed it. And... Again, you know, to sort of just cut through some of the details here, we, we, we were running an agency which we were in the process of selling and we ultimately uh, sold and then merged it with another agency. And to be honest, we didn't enjoy it. You know, the, the, for nobody's fault, there's lots of lovely people on the other side, but, you know, mergers are difficult and you lose control of your own destiny and what, you know, what your vision for a company should be. And that is, a, and again, a classic example of something that was not enjoyable at the time but ultimately was the makings of lucky generals because we quite soon decided we didn't want to do it but we also crystallized the fact that let's do it ourselves again in the way that we do want to do it and we'll set up our own agency 
and and that was a really good sometimes you need a reminder of what you don't like or what you don't want to yeah. do to really sort of focus you on what you do want to do and and so we set lucky journals up in 2013 and the name comes from a napoleon quote of all things oh um, does it it's quite an obscure one this but he oh, yeah he was asked what do you look for in your officers and yeah. he sort of half jokingly said just bring me your lucky generals in other words bring me people who've got a re- track record of getting results rather than you know bullshitters they can talk a good game and i guess for an agency we kind of figured oh that's quite nice because we had a track record and have a track record of getting results and you know it, it is a little bit like trench warfare right now and you know being in the in the battlefield for your clients and coming back with the results kind of appealed to us what's been funny about it is that it's it's appealed both to sort of captains of industry who you know perhaps like the military history aspects mm. of things but also you know 20 year old designers who just think it's a cool name and it could be like a could be a band as far as they're concerned so it's sort of it seems to have a kind of an unusually broad appeal that name it does that it's kind of cool that i i I'd, I'd never heard the napoleon quote but that does make complete sense now i know it yeah mm. oh that's brilliant and, and actually and actually it does that sense of you know that, that sense of what works in the real world on the battlefield that comes through in a lot of the stories you tell which which we'll come on to because yeah that because i think what i love about the way you talk in the book is how practical your you know your your, your thinking is and your campaigns are you know that that what is true about the brand and exploiting that it's all very very practical isn't it rather than theoretical yeah i, I hate overly intellectual sort of strategic thinking i don't like planners who stroke their chins all day and take ages to come up with an idea i think you know life is you know, ordinary people and, you know, down to earth, you know, thinking is where where I'm happy. And, you know, I think ideas should connect, you know, with, you know, populist audiences and not be too yeah. sort of, you, you shouldn't need thousands of PowerPoint charts to understand them because that's yeah. not obviously what people in the real world are going to ever get. And uh, I mean, not not to overdo your analogy, but but I guess, you know, your other role is is to stand for something, make the brand stand for something yeah. that the entire troops will go into battle for. Yeah. And if they don't understand it or it feels a bit ethereal, then they're not going to do that. Whereas, you, you know, you, you give them something that they can all get behind and they all understand, then that's going to have a far bigger chance of success. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, funnily enough, in our, our, in our first office, we had we, we used to put all our ideas on flags and we haven't started kind of feel a bit nostalgic that we could maybe do that again. <laughs> but our, our office layout doesn't quite work in the same way. But it was a really good test. It wasn't just an aesthetic thing. It wasn't us just playing around with being generals. It was actually quite a good test of an idea. If it made sense as a visual and a, and a, and a line on a, on a flag, you know, so if we we're talking about hostels and something like Hostel World, it would be meet the world. And, you know, that was a beautiful, simple you know, provocative idea that everyone could get behind, and we had we had lots of them. I think that's still, even if we don't physically make the flags anymore, I, I feel like that's still the sort of simplicity that we aim for. That's a great test. I, I, yeah, in, in a lot of the jobs I've done, I've often said to people, you know, phone your gran up and yeah. tell your gran the idea, and and if she likes it, the chances are you're away. You know, yeah. no offense to grands out there, but it, it just needs to pass the gran test. I think yeah. a lot of these kind of ideas, yeah, because yeah. you know. Because it's very easy, isn't it, in the kind of world that you and I occupy, where, where we're thinking about strategy and creative all the time, to kind of get carried away with how clever we are with this idea and how, you know, we're sort of 15 steps ahead of, you know, a- anybody else on it. Whereas actual fact, you've just got to land the simplicity of the idea first, you know, before you get too clever with it. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I like common sense and clarity above sort of, I hate it when people say things like, you know, because often the, the, the sort of, 
preconception about strategists is that they're you know people say oh, he's got this he's got a brain the size of a planet or something like that. I would I hate that. It's not like that we all want to be idiots either. But you know I don't like the idea that we are sort of you know super intellectual noodlers. I like us to be doing things and you know making things yeah. in the outside world. I agree because I, I think there's genius in making something stupidly simple yeah. that everybody can understand yeah. rather than those pretentious statements you often see companies make very grandiose you know which you think oh yeah very very clever and I'm sure the consultants got paid a, a ton for that but but I'd far far rather have something that everyone gets in an instant and you know unites everybody it would be fun. so listen I thought what we'd do now is uh, really enjoyed your book by the way so congratulations on, on on that it, and, and I loved how it's you know to anyone listening do do get hold of it by the way it, it, it's a it's a fun read it's got so much practical advice and, and it's uh, yeah it, it's it's really motivating and what I thought I'd do is do a lucky dip if you don't yeah. mind Andy so um, yeah. I've picked 10 of my favorite chapters it was okay. quite hard to get down to 10 because there's lots of there's lots to choose from and, and, and I'm sure we'll we'll miss many many nuggets but anyway let's do it so what I thought I'd do is give you a chance to throw me a number from one to ten and we'll pick a chapter and, uh, and get into it blame me I'm, t- I'm terrified now in case I can't remember what I actually wrote <laughs> what did you say I yeah know. Uh, this could be quite a this could be where it all goes horribly wrong okay lucky number seven we have to start there don't lucky, lucky numbers number. oh intre- oh okay we're going to start with lockdown oh there we go and and, and the socially distanced teapot there yes. we go Oh yeah. So actually, I, I tell you what, for the benefit of everyone listening, what is a socially distanced teapot? But but actually, if you wouldn't mind, take us back to when you started working for this brand. How did you come up with the idea? Because I th- this is this is one of my favourite ever brands. But uh, yeah, t- t- talk to us about Yorkshire Tea. Yeah, that's a brand that a lot of people absolutely adore. So we were lucky enough to win Yorkshire Tea. I don't know now, maybe five years ago, and it was one of these funny things where we didn't necessarily do the best pitch. In fact, the client, wonderful man uh, called Dom Dwight. Uh, was up front with us and said, look, you didn't necessarily do the best pitch there, but there was something in your thinking that I really liked. And and basically the germ of the idea that we hadn't quite cracked was taking the fact that, that they're, you know, obviously from Yorkshire uh, and turning that into a, a spirit where they did everything properly. So there's this, you know, there's that phrase or that word, you know, proper feels like a real Yorkshire yeah. word. And, and actually they had, you know, uh, the idea was written on the factory wall, more or less, which was we do things proper here. So quite often, and there's been a few examples of this, the answer is staring you in the face on the factory. People just walk past it, you know, uh, day in, day out. But we spotted that and we thought, that's interesting. But what if we just pushed that to an extreme and said we do, you know, where everything's uh, done proper. So it, there's a kind of a not just, the, the conceit was that not just the, the, the tea production, of course that's done proper, yeah. but we'll get Sean Bean to do the the internal pep talk or we'll get parkinson <laughs> michael parkinson to do the interviews or we'll get the brownlee brothers to do the dispatch running and all that kind of sort of stuff if you do if you do all those menial tasks proper then you can imagine how good the bloody tea is and so that was incredibly successful a long run campaign which took them from number three in the market to number one and everything was going great nobody thought that was possible because there's some you know pg tips and tetley are both very strong brands in their own right but we were we were on a roll for a few years, Yorkshire Tea, where everything's done proper. And then, of course, the pandemic came. But as I said, because they had such a clear point of view on what they stood for now, and t- together with them, we had established such a strong tone of voice, easier for us to react to all the difficult things that are going on in the world. And so for us, it was about not suddenly becoming all serious, because that's what a lot of brands did. They started talking in a very different tone of voice that sounded mm-hmm. weird from them. 
So obviously we had to be sensitive to some of the you know very difficult things going on, but we thought the best thing that we can do to help is to boost people's morale and give them a little bit of a smile in these difficult times. And so the social distancing teapot came about when when we were all going back into the office the first time round, like I guess maybe August of last year, and we were all wondering how that whole situation was going to work. We pretended to invent a teapot with a ridiculously long <laughs> spout that would uh, allow us to sort of uh, serve each other cups of tea uh, back in the office, and then we did a sort of fun piece of communication around that. And of course, we sort of proved by the way, by the end that it was a rubbish idea and didn't actually work. But but still, you know, the this, the the heart our heart was in the right place, and we were really trying to do things proper, you know, and you know get people sort of socially distancing properly, I guess, and and but also you know mingling with each other properly, and and it was a sort of a really a moment when the whole world's advertising scene had adopted the same sort of tone of voice of being very maudlin and sort of mm. poor-faced and serious and worthy. I think everyone was just like really relieved to to see someone with the confidence to laugh at themselves and to laugh a little bit at our, ourselves. Out of interest, have you, have you won any Cannes Lions for your Yorkshire tea work? Do you know, we have won quite a few awards, but I don't think, I mean, it was that, that was shortlisted at Cannes this year, mm. but I, it doesn't necessarily win at foreign advertising festivals as much as in the uk just because i think it's quite a you know uh, it's yeah. such a quintessentially okay. british brand and i think if yeah. you you know a judge from argentina or poland you might wonder what the hell this what's going on funny yeah. thing is sort of thing because because i i really th- it's on in my day job at system one at yorkshire tea is one of the best performing brands on our database it mm. is right right up there at the top actually and, you know, it, it does literally do everything that we, we talk about in terms of, you know, stories and characters and, you know, soundtracks and, and everything, really. It's, it, 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 it's, in fact, I very often, the Kaiser Chiefs fo- on hold ad yes. as an example of, you know, an example of getting it right. You know, it, it's, 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 it's there. It's absolutely brilliant. And, but also you've got that lovely proof point of the going from number three to number one. I, I remember actually it was a year or eight, I can't remember, but it was reasonably recently that, you know, Yorkshire tea became number one on twelve-week average, and then on the on the twelve-month average as well. So it, it it's one of those brilliant case studies where creativity is driving, you know, driving the business measures very demonstrably in a category that many people probably would go is is a bit tired, you know, and 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 a bit unloved really. And you've done some spectacular, yeah, spectacular you. work on it. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. just sort of shows that you shouldn't give up. I mean, certainly the, the conventional wisdom was that PG and Tetley, and I worked on Tetley for you know almost a decade. Um, yeah. The the perception was that that will never change. Those two brands have been in place number one and two, and they've swapped places for decades. So forget about doing anything other than sort of staying number three and managing decline. But we've uh, proved them wrong, so it's been very satisfying. Yeah. Well, we're off to a good start. So mm-hmm. lucky number seven is now off yep. the list. Where are you going? Where are you going to go next? <laughs> what about I'm going to try another lucky number, which go is on. three. We're going three, right, three is lucky timing. So first of all, I must oh. congratulate you because your new co-op ad was the System 1 ad of the week last week. Oh so, yes, uh, so I thought that was very so, good. Yeah. yeah, so well done on that, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, 
so tell me the background. I, I thought you, you had a lovely analogy in your book about the strategy for the co-op that said, if this was the Swedish co-op that came up with it, we'd all be lauding it and applauding it for, you know, for its very smart strategy. But somehow, because it's the good old co-op that we've all grown up with, we, we don't give it quite... It's a bit like football players, isn't it? Like, this is a bit niche, but I'm a Southampton fan. And Adam Lallana, who, who went on to play for Liverpool, we used to play for Southampton, he was one of the most technically gifted players in the world but because he's British we don't recognise it that he, he would literally be Lionel Messi in any other team or any other country but somehow he's British so he, he obviously isn't technically gifted you know but I, I, I kind of smile about that I, I think absolutely right about the co-op strategy so tell me about about where that idea came from for the, for the campaign actually there's some research that shows that we, we we value ideas from far away more than ones that are close to home there's some research by the University oh, of San Diego really? that's in, in the book I think but yeah in this case you know so the co-op's 175 years old probably about 177 now um, and it is part of the fabric of so many communities but because of that we take things for granted you know again a big part of the book is about getting us to appreciate things that we're just very familiar with because once you appreciate how lucky you are uh, you can start to sort of harness some of that luck and and in the court's case yeah I made this sort of joke that yes if they were called the coop and they <laughs> with a k uh, and an umlaut or something like that and they were you know from Sweden and they were doing all these cool things we'd all think they were super cool and so it was how can we remind people that the co-op isn't just the corner shop on the end of their road it is there's also a really sort of incredible ethical aspect to them so mm. every time you buy you know something at the co-op um, money goes to the local community and they've been living that for the last 175 years and you know they also got a great record when it comes to the environment and you know standing up for people in disadvantaged communities and all that kind of sort of stuff and so really the idea was to stop talking about just price and product because they can never you know beat some of the big boys when it comes to that but really remind people what makes the co-op special which is this ethical aspect and and importantly unlike everybody else it's not just some sort of csr thing it's not a bolt-on it's not you know some fake you know woke washing or whatever people want to call it uh, these days it's literally been at the heart of the company for the last 175 years and, and as the line said, it's what we do. So the line was, it's what we do. And that, that became a really liberating thought for them to talk about all sorts of things and to do all sorts of things, whether that's you know partnering with Marcus Rashford to tackle food poverty, or more recently, I think the, the campaign that you were talking about is making sure that you can uh, recycle your soft plastics, you know, like your crisp packets and bread mm. bags at their stores, but you can you can actually take them from other supermarkets. So what we've done just in the last couple of days is put posters outside Tesco and M&S and places like that using their sort of fonts and inviting people to take their soft plastics to the co-op because we're a cooperative and it doesn't matter where, you know, those plastics have come from. We want to do the right thing. It's what That's we very do. good. Do you, do you remember when Tesco took a, an ad out with "Don't buy your beer from Tesco, go to the pub" yes. sort of thing? We we tested that on System One, and, and that that generosity gets incredibly well rewarded by consumers. Actually, so I think you know the, the consumers are smart enough to to recognise when a brand is doing the right thing like that. So yeah. I, I I I love that post. I thought that was, you know what you did with it was outside Tesco was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And, and I guess what we would say at the co-op, just to, to uh, stand up for them, because it's a brand I really absolutely love, is mm -hmm. that they they do that day in, day out. It's the, their business model. Whereas I, I really like that ad by Tesco, but it, it, that really very much was a one-off. And, you know, the next yes. day they're back to gouging and battering the local pubs yes, and, yeah. and everybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it, it was a one-day ceasefire rather yes. than a, 
an ongoing war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas I, I just I love the way that the corp is baked into everything they do. You know, it's what we do. One of the things that's lovely about your book, and I, and I think is you know having managed lots of brand, lots sorry, lots of marketing teams over the over the, over the years, people always seem to find excuses for why they can't deliver. You know, they, oh, my budget's not big enough, or I'm a new brand, I'm only small, or oh, we're, we're, we're big and slow and, and, and fuddy-duddy or whatever. And what I love about your book is that every single one of those things, you just turn on its head yeah. and go, okay, we're big, let's get lucky. You know, we're small. How, how does that, you know, how does that make us lucky kind of thing? It's a really good mindset, I think, that runs through what you talk about. I think the very first campaign that we ever did actually was used, there was, there was a, a, a shoestring budget, it was, it was a get tackling homophobia in football for Paddy Power and it was, you know, there really was no money available. So we took this idea that it was a shoestring budget and that became the idea. We, we used shoelaces, <laughs> bootlaces, and we created rainbow bootlaces that we sent out to every professional footballer and asked them to lace up in support of their LGBT colleagues because nobody had come out as LGBT at that point and then we got fans to you know join in and support as well and that that was you know a virtually zero budget campaign that yeah. has generated huge amounts of publicity over the last that's now been going on for the last seven or eight years yeah, so we might come there. on we, we might come on to that one of the other points but but I love that because I wonder whether you'd have had that idea had you been given a budget no exactly that's the problem sometimes when you've got all the money in the world you become lazy and you don't think of things like yeah. that and I can't remember who it was used to advise people if you if you're stuck half the budget try to think which business person that was but that it was it was somebody who who uh, you know if his team ever got stuck he would just have to say which sounds counterintuitive you know you you would think don't you mean double the budget no cut it and that cut would be it, make yeah. you more yeah. more creative and it's the same with as I say with we've already talked about this about deadlines and timing sometimes mm. giving yourself less time will make you more creative rather than you using it as an excuse by saying we don't have enough time or we don't have enough money you know just that, try that think is 100 percent true that i mean I, I i think when you when you have a big budget the temptation is you, you do incremental budgeting every year so you start with what did we do last year oh we did this much on outdoor we did this much on tv and we had this much for influencers and then what you have is you know you add 10 percent or take 10 percent away rather mm. than going we've got nothing what would you do yeah. and it forces a very different conversation now that's a really good point so listen you, you've, you've used up lucky number three where are you going to go next? No, they're, they're the two lucky numbers, aren't they? I'm, I'm on to unlucky <laughs> numbers now, really, I think. Seven and three there. Yeah. All right, what about number five? Number five, lucky dog. Okay, I, I love this one because, you know, the in your introduction, you say, you know, cat sat on the mat, right? It's not a particularly interesting story until you add in the word dog. Cat sat on the dog's mat and suddenly you've got a little bit of a little bit of drama already in the story and you've, you, you know, you've got people engaged. And I loved that you were talking there about Anthony Joshua the film you made with him on Undrama. And this is where I think we're going to play a bit of snap because when I was marketing director and LucasAid, we also made a, we made a film with Anthony Joshua called No One Ever Moved Forward Standing Still. And and actually the thing, the thing that was amazing about it, I remember Dominic Goldman at Grey kind of pitched me the idea and I literally had tingles down my spine when I heard it. And he, he said to me, look, no one's ever told AJ's story before. And mm. he's about to go out and fight Klitschko at Wembley. And it's going to be a big cult moment in culture. And he said, somebody should tell the story of, of how he got to where he got. And so I remember sending out a couple of the team out to, in fact, he was about to go into lockdown. So the only window we had was his holiday in Dubai with his family. And he, he said, oh, send the guys out. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, meet, we'll meet them at a water park and we'll catch up. So two lucky people in my team got to go out and spend some time with AJ and, and, and chat. But 
you know what that did is actually it is it completely changed the story because what mm. we realized it, it wasn't about the success it was about the the lucky and yeah. unlucky moments it's about getting in trouble with the police yeah. you know it's about getting bailed out of jail it was about yeah. the job on the building site that built his muscles in terms of you know you know being able to box and that's very interesting and uh, it's a lovely parallel because you also made a story it made a, an impressive film didn't you for under armor at a similar time yeah yeah that was about the battles going on in his own mind really so he was he was literally uh, shadow boxing so boxing the shadows and the doubts that exist in his his mind and and as with your story uh, uh, it's interesting because if either of us had just done something featuring him succeeding without any trouble then it's that is a cats out in the mat story isn't it but as you say if if there's some jeopardy i mean the other one i often use in this situation is you know we've we've done three big um super bowl campaigns for amazon over the years which is pretty amazing for a british agency and what is fantastic is that they they're a really smart client as you can imagine who realize that people don't want you know in this it's a it's an incredible event the super bowl people want to be entertained or interested by the advertising as much as by the game and so nobody wants to spend the super bowl with some big company just telling them how wonderful they are i mean obviously you've got to land on a positive but for goodness sake don't be so pompous as that you think that everybody wants to hear how perfect you are and each of the commercials that we've made each of the campaigns we've we've had a little bit of a flaw or a little bit of something that we can laugh at ourselves about that makes Amazon and Alexa feel more human. And and in the case of the first one that we did, it was we told the story of Alexa losing her voice and we imagined what would happen if Alexa lost her voice. And that's a really brave thing for a client to sort of buy into. On this, you know, it's the most expensive airtime in world advertising. It's eye-watering. And mm. to spend it talking about your product effectively not working uh, albeit, you know, we we all know that it's uh, sort of a, just a story that we're telling. It was mm. an amazing sort of act of bravery. But that was the first time that British agency has been voted the the, the favourite advertising of the Super Bowl. So it was a lovely moment for us. That's amazing. And if, in fact, you've touched on my favourite one of Richard Shotton's 25 behavioural myths, which is the mm. pratfall effect. Yes. I, I, I think it's brilliant. I, I, you know, sometimes a stumble, a mistake, something Definitely. going wrong, at, actually. And we all know that. We've, we've all experienced that. Isn't it? Suddenly you, you get the audience on your side and, you know, they come, they, they, you know, they come round to you. Yeah. And, and actually, the bigger you are, the more important that is because you know we're we're human beings and we don't like overbearingly big and perfect mm-hmm. you know robotic companies even if that you know an, an economist might say well, that's perfect because they're you know efficient and reliable but actually as humans we don't like it to be entirely that way i mean obviously we want them the products to work and you know things to run smoothly but we like the brands to show us a little bit of vulnerability i think so that yeah that's been a really helpful sort of way to help market um amazon Amazing! Congratulations on the Super Bowl result. That's 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 spectacular. You've got Lucky Dog off the list, so yeah. you've got three down. Where are you going to go next? Okay, good. I'm I'm going for all the uh, odd numbers. I think number nine. Oh, we're going number nine. Right. Okay. This is this is the Lucky Boring. So I, I oh, I've yeah. got a, I've got a hypothesis, which is the more boring the category, the more interesting you become. Because yeah. and it's based on a little bit of evidence, this, but we often at System One, we often present, you know, the category averages. So we obviously we, we test, I say obviously, but anyway, but we do, we do test every ad that airs in lots of different categories in the US and UK. And one really interesting thing that emerges is the more interesting your category, 
the lazier the advertising and the and the, the less interesting the category quote unquote the more interesting the you know the more interesting the advertising becomes so one of the the best categories in, of advertising in the UK i think it might be the top is bread <laughs> bread advertising mm. right whereas whereas you take one of the worst categories would be technology or mm. cars where where they're significantly well now you look at the production budget that goes into technology and cars and it is astronomical so it's not a money thing but but the temptation when you're in those quote unquote more interesting categories is to talk about what you do and, and yep. talk about functional benefits and all that kind of stuff whereas when you haven't got that to talk about you haven't got the iphone 21 coming out with a gazillion cameras on it and you're talking about bread you have to look you have to work much harder so it's quite an interesting one but i i kind of thought you know it'd be a lovely innovation exercise to go can you find the most boring category the most overlooked category where literally nobody wants to go plastic cups or something or i don't know would have said sanitizer before the pandemic right yeah that would have been like a boring cat like hell we're all into ppe now aren't we but i just thought that was interesting that even boring can can turn into can turn out to be a lucky charm yeah absolutely i'd love to see that research by the way that sounds great you should send that to me because that's definitely how i feel just intuitively even without that data i feel that surely it's easier to stand out against a dull boring background than against a you know really exciting one that's that's tougher so let, let, let me put you on the spot then so name me what you think the best advertising campaign in mobile phones Mobile phones is very hard. I I can't think of any in terms of handsets. I suppose it's Apple. Probably they do good advertising sometimes. The number one by quite some way is Samsung's Ostrich. I don't know if you remember the oh, virtual yes, he- yeah, yeah, the yeah. virtual headset. I mean, yeah. absolutely amazing. What do you think the number one car advert in the UK is? Uh, now, actually, this is quite an old campaign, so I'm, I'll give you ten years to choose from. <laughs> oh wow, that's Sorry. a toughie. Um, yes, I realise it's not that recent. The one that tops the category. It's I mean, not a I, curveball. I, I, I guess you know the the ones that used to be great were things like, you know, Renault and Papa and Nicole and people like that, weren't they? They were very effective, yeah. long running campaigns. They were, they, were, they were good. But I can't think of we, any car we, campaigns. We, for a we, long time. we don't go back that far. But if we yeah. did go back that far, there's a chance that would be in there because that's yeah. a great. What's the what is us. the car one then? What tell me it's about Skoda Cake. Oh yeah, no, that I can imagine Skoda. See, that's another yeah. pratfall effect, isn't it? There's a sort of yeah. uh, a recognition that everyone's views the brand as a bit of a joke. So why don't yeah. we just accept that and uh, acknowledge it, sort of thing? Yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. But they're both great bits of both uh, genuine pieces of entertainment. And I think the point is, as you say, if you're in a a hot, what you think is a high interest category that you fool yourself into thinking people want to hear every last detail about my technology and my car and so on. actually we're not, even even those categories are not always the highest of in, you know interest categories but there's only so much you know product detail we want to know and if you're in a low interest category then that just gives you more creative flexibility to do something you know really interesting and maybe you turn on said one of the f- one of the things i found was a, and this is a personal anecdote but i was traveling in scotland back home a while back and I I found myself going through a really boring village and when I got to the the sign on this village it was called dull so it was literally no. dull but what was amazing and uh, they'd really turned this around they they had twinned themselves with two places one called bland <laughs> in Oregon and one called boring in uh, New South Wales in Australia so it was dull boring and bland and they had marketed bland. themselves as the trinity of tedium 
and they generated a whole bunch of PR and tourists coming through the village just to check out dull, boring and bland and had, you know, created this little global mini brand out of what what looks like the worst possible material. So I, I reckon if dull, boring and bland can do it, the rest of us have got no excuse. <laughs> That's wonderful. Bizarrely, it's just reminded me of a trip I took in Norway once. The coldest I've ever been in my life, minus 25, stood on a station changing trains and I looked above to, to see I was in hell. Oh, that's fantastic. Place, there is actually a place called hell. Where hell freezes fro- over as it, well. Exactly. It had frozen over and I was there minus 25 at some ungodly hour trying to change trains. So hell does, ex- hell does exist. But anyway. Okay, so you've done a run of odd numbers now. You've done three, five, seven and nine. Where do you want to go next? Number two then. Two? Number two. So lucky mascots. Mm. Now this is this is an unfashionable topic. The, the 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 declining use of mascots. Then, what what do you think? Out of interest, why do you think using mascots and characters is sort of out of fashion at the moment? Because because as you quote in your book, there's some strong evidence to show that you know campaigns that use characters and mascots perform better. So yeah. wh- why 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 are we not taking them more seriously? Yeah, and actually, th- this is one case where I, I do know that this, uh, System One's done some work on this, haven't they? So I, I, I think I quote that in the book. But I think from an, I think there's there's a couple of different reasons. Partly, it's about new brooms. You know, as as we know, CMOs and agencies have a relatively short sort of tenure these days. So quite often, what somebody will do is inherit a campaign and say, well, "Let's get rid of the character that we've you know spent building up all of these years because they're bored of it, even if the you know the actual real people are not bored of it so i think that's often the case i think it's seen as being old-fashioned you know a bit like jingles are also sort of out of fashion it's <laughs> sort of it's supposed to be sort of a, a clunky or uncreative style of advertising and you know maybe people have just forgotten how to create them or how to develop them and you know really very often the case is you know don't just bin them you know yes you might be right in thinking that the, the character is tired or needing a bit of a reinvention but then the task is to reinvent it and you can mm-hmm. have you know tons of fun or creativity in bringing a character up to date i think what kfc did with colonel sanders in america through wyden kennedy was incredible because you'd think that he was the most old-fashioned I mean, he's literally an old bloke with a beard who looks like he was on the wrong side of the civil war in the you know in the states <laughs> i mean he looks you know particularly yeah. dodgy in today's climate but they reinvented him and had lots of fun with him and did something very postmodern and you know cool, frankly. When it would have probably been a lot easier to just get rid of him and sort of say well, he's a problem. Let's lose all that branding. And you know that again, the point I'm making the book because if you've got one of those characters, that is like gold dust. So realize how lucky you are, rather than see that as a bit of a problem. You know that we've inherited this character that none of us like inside the company. Well, you know, let's have another look at this character and see if they can be repurposed. That's such good advice. I think you're right, and, and you know. You're right, you've got the tenure of the CMO, changing agency relationships. You've also got, typically, marketing is incredibly young as well as a, as, a, as a discipline in terms of the people that are running most brands. And they just don't have that sort of maybe appreciation for the legacy or, or, or awareness of, you know, how powerful the assets under their control might be. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, yeah. No, and and the, ev- the evidence is very powerful. I think, you know, you mentioned the system one where my colleague Orlando did the work on it mm. and it's probably one of the strongest recommendations we give to any brand is mm. he, i mean he calls it fluent devices but things that come to mind quickly like should have gone spec savers or yeah. you're not you when you're hungry you know th- those things that become associated with the brand whether they're strap lines music characters 
familiar scenes, you know, whatever, are incredibly powerful and they build up over time. And yeah. that's the thing is that, you know, like the Hofmeister bear I read in campaign yesterday is coming back. So, I mean, Hofmeister, I mean, that that is a dated brand if ever we mm. heard one. But but there's there's a legacy there that's a rich legacy and it's a leg- you know it, it's a brand that's still in our heads you know if you're yeah. of a certain age I appreciate you know mm. the, you know the kids won't be thinking about it but but there's the, there's huge value in that that I think gets overlooked yeah uh, and I think particular uh, that is a really good point that there's a sort of uh, sometimes people are very literal about these characters and you know in this as I've just described with KFC and the Colonel you might say he's an old guy you know he's never going to appeal to young people. And therefore, mm. we've got to, you know, do something that is lit, you know, more sort of obviously, you know, millennial, let's say, you know, because it's been an obsession with that particular demographic. And was was actually, you know, consumers are not idiots. They can they can aspire to and find amazing and funny, you know, some an old colonel if they're portrayed in the right way. Yeah. So you don't have to show yeah. your target audience in, in all the advertising uh, in a really yeah. sort of boring formulaic way. And I think I think people in, in, in marketing, people forget like what they enjoy on television yes. or in movies or in a book you know we, we, we all laugh at mrs doubtfire for example you know there's some wonderful characters that are much older and 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 you know the whole point of films is they they bring you into another world you know and they entertain you and and they they create memories that that you know you, that live with you for a long time and it just seems we forget all that sometimes when we make an ad that it has to be like you say reflecting of the audience and very young and trendy and you can't do any of those things. So listen, you've got number two. So you've got going to even numbers. Uh, where do you want to go next? So I, I'll it? give you what's left. You've got one, four, six, eight, and ten. Okay, left. number six then. Let's number see. Number six. Right. Oh, okay. We're getting personal now. Oh, so dear. this is lucky. Lucky shrink. Oh yeah. This, this is where you introduce your wife, and 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 perhaps the biggest challenge I think you've probably ever done which is how do you make filling in your tax return something you want to do which i mean i as somebody that's filled in a fair few tax returns it is genuinely the thing that makes me shiver every year and i i just hate it and i put it off for as long as possible so yeah tell me about that yeah i should should explain that my wife's a psychologist so i quite often sort of uh, leaf through her psychology journals and stuff like that for a bit of inspiration and and actually, that this happened on, on when we were originally working on the tax man, the HMRC, Inland Revenue, it was back then. And th- there'd been a sort of an assumption that the only way you'd ever get someone to fill in your tax form is to shout at them. So do you remember there was that little character called Hector, the inspector? And then that was followed up by, so he would just tell people, go on, you know. And then there was a, there was Mrs. Doyle from uh, Father Ted who just told people, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, just literally sort of hectoring people and then, you know, sort of um, badgering them. So that, 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 that was the model, was like you just nag people. And but it was and it had been successful up to a point, but it was losing effect. And and actually in that case, the the the, the little sort of character wasn't helpful. So we didn't mm. think about could they be repurposed. But they were so set in the old world of somebody who didn't like you didn't like that little pinstriped man that we thought we'd better to start again. And the breakthrough was really it was sort of reading some stuff in a psychology journal from my wife's about how how procrastinators you know people have got actual clinical procrastination problems how you deal with them and the psychologist was sort of saying the last thing you do is just shout at them go you know do it you know that that's like telling your teenagers to get up the more you shout up the stairs get up <laughs> they're probably more likely to put the cover over their head so we sort of st- started from the premise that you know n- let's just acknowledge that no one likes doing the tax return and it's boring and it's a chore but let's 
let's almost kind of say it doesn't have to be as bad as all that you can get it over and done with as soon as you possibly can if you do it this way you know if you fill in the form in a particular way at a particular time and maybe use online filing which was just starting at the time and so the idea was tax doesn't have to be taxing so we were never saying it was going to be the biggest fun in your life we weren't pretending it was going to be some amazing thing but we weren't also hitting you over the head with penalties yeah. it was just sort of saying, like this doesn't have to be the worst thing that tax doesn't have to be taxing uh, and the advertising was all about human nature and how we tend to put chores off but we can make them better if we get them out of the way and then we can concentrating doing all the other things that we do in, uh, to do in our life and that that ran about 10 years that was uh, one of the longest running campaigns the government yeah. has ever run again that was we, we really built that up over a long period i came across another an, another actually story I, I, I need to check it exactly as i remember it but i was reading about an epidemic that broke out on a university campus and uh, they were tr- they were trying to get the it's quite relevant today actually they were trying to get the students vaccinated against this epidemic that had broken out and so what they decided to do is that at the beginning of every lecture they would show a graphical image of what would happen to you potentially if you caught this disease and how awful it could be and that they did that and then uh, no one responded and so no one no one got the vaccine so they thought well, we must be not telling the message hard enough so in the next set of lectures they they, they amped up the graphic mm. detail and and really went to town scaring people about what could happen if they didn't get it sorted and again nobody got vaccinated and they were thinking what on earth's going on and then someone came up with an idea and all they did in the third lecture was just show a map of where the doctors was amazing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just Fantastic. like see they, they'd absolutely got the wrong thing it was nothing to do with the with with you know I the severity that. of what would happen if you don't do it it's just like they needed to be shown where to go and i, yeah. I kind of feel like that with you know a few years ago when they you know the, the inland revenue amped up the you know the, the really scary voice you will get a hundred pound fine if you don't yeah. get it in by the 31st of january i would hear that so many times and just i'd hate that sort of yeah. thing and it's just all i needed to know was how do i do the damn thing you know that's what i love easily i love that sort of story because i love human beings are so illogical and the way this is why i think you know we collectively as an industry have got something to offer because uh a lot of the things that human beings do don't really obey the rules of you know conventional economists or you know, scientists or public policy people. The other thing that we used to find on HMRC, which you probably just alluded to there, was if you, the more you talked about penalties, the, the more that made people who did pay their tax on time think that everybody was uh, was not paying the taxes and yeah. therefore made them less likely to do it themselves. They thought, God, it sounds like, you know, there's the guys down the road's not doing it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it either. It's a bit like when, you, when I worked on the Met Police for a while and they used to be very careful about putting, when they put, you know, signs up saying there'd been an incident, you know, there'd been a murder, then they used to create, you know, people would be scared in that particular neighbourhood rather than reassured that the police were on the case and looking for the yeah. killers. They would uh, actually sort of have um, problems. So they were very judicious about how often they use those sort of communications because they found that they were completely counterproductive half the time yeah no it's, it's good good social proof isn't it you know show, show it showing showing how many people do comply rather yeah. than the yeah, one yeah, or two yeah. that don't comply yeah yeah. yeah yeah that's that's quite powerful good all right so we've done lucky shrink number six so you've got one four eight and ten to let's go for number four then number four all right okay this one lucky paint so oh, there's a yeah, there's a, yeah t- tell the story about this because I, I think this is just a wonderful example of where looking outside of your own category can give you some real inspiration yes the story was it was from the first world war 
when Britain was on the uh, you know receiving end of an absolute battering from the U-boats and America hadn't sort of entered the war yet so it was looking like it was game over for the UK I think it was in about 1917 and there was only about six weeks six weeks worth of wheat left in the country and everyone's panicking in Whitehall and they were all thinking of you know how could they tackle these newfangled U-boats that they'd never really had to deal with before and all the sort of military people were throwing in their ideas and then one person who was a painter by trade you know he'd obviously been conscripted said could we use camouflage and everyone sort of pooped and said well that, that's ridiculous obviously you can camouflage a tank on land but you can't camouflage a whole ship i mean they're hundreds of feet long for starters and they're in the middle of the open sea so there's nowhere to hide and he said yeah i'm not talking about hiding you just need it to you need to make it harder to hit not harder to see and it, nobody mm. understood what the point he was making. He says, I'm an artist, I know about this. You can use camouflage, not just to disguise things so that you can't see them, but to make it you know, harder to tell what direction they're traveling in or what shape they are or how big they are. And what his point was that the way that the U-boats used to work was they, they used to have to surface in those days to you know, have a look at the periscope. And then they used to have to calculate you know, the size of the ship, the direction, the you know how it's traveling and so on and then calculate that and then send off their their torpedo so if you could if you could paint it in such a way that they couldn't make those calculations you even if they were still visible then you would avoid being hit and so they they did something that was absolutely extraordinary and counterintuitive they painted these ships in the most dazzling array of <laughs> colors patterns shapes bright geometric sort of you know patterns and so on and they got theater designers and other artists and cubist artists and all the rest of it to create these garish ships so the ships were now much easier to see which you'd think would be an absolute disaster mm. but it wasn't because they were now quite hard to work out what they were to the naked eye which is all they had in those days it was actually phenomenally successful and they ended up painting thousands of ships that way and they called it dazzle painting and actually oh, I, wow. I i just somebody followed up on this had read the book and enjoyed it mm. and then i think they have connections with the navy and said that they still do it to this day in certain circumstances and and sent me a picture of a ship that had just been kitted out in dazzle painting of a slightly more modern kind but it was the same principle right to this day which i thought was absolutely phenomenal i love that phrase dazzle painting yeah that's kind of that's cool isn't it yeah yeah wow who'd have thought yeah an artist saves the war yeah and and i think that's a great example of sometimes we are all guilty of you know we're trying to solve a problem so if you're a military person or a politician you know you 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 approach it only from one lens Mm. uh, whereas actually sometimes the answer might be in art or how could we get inspiration from sport or religion or psychology or whatever it turns out to be and and in that case it was um, art you know having that trip around the art gallery is not dead time that can you know that can inspire you in your workplace i think i know i noticed actually in your book how often you, you when you're telling the story of where an idea came from very often you're not in the meeting the focus group considering the actual topic you're, you're often you know somewhere else yeah. and then you, and then and that's where you draw the dot you, you know you're talking to your wife an example we've talked about before or or you know or or you're looking at art or you're you, you you're distracted quote unquote aren't you from the task in hand but it's actually when you're distracted that you start to see the connection and join the dots and make the crazy yeah. leaps yeah and we've probably all experienced that you know the fact that you know if you this is why I say work, working hard is obviously really important and if you've got a difficult problem yes go at it and really concentrate but but sometimes you know you know this western idea that 
there's no such thing as luck and you just work harder and harder and harder. You know, slogging away at the same problem in the same old way often doesn't get you the results. Mm. Whereas taking a you know an hour off and walking around the block and seeing if nature will inspire you or just you know having a shower or switching off completely lying on a beach or whatever it is yeah. you use your brain in a different way even walking into a different room in your house can sometimes do it can't you because you suddenly you've changed Precisely. the scenery and i think that's why luck becomes important you can increase your chance of striking it lucky if you once you acknowledge that this thing exists and that actually having these collisions of different ideas is what makes for creativity you know Oh, that's, that's top advice. I mean, in lockdown, I've tried to embrace a daily walk and talk where yeah. I kind of keep about three people I need to talk to, plan an hour walk, you know, from my house. It's good exercise, right? Burn yes. the lockdown calories. But but also the, the mere fact of talking while walking, yeah. I find creates a different conversation yeah. and, and a different kind of energy and some different ideas. I think that's that's really true. I think it's been one of the challenges, hasn't it, of the last 18 months has been, if we're not careful, we la we lose the serendipity that we have in the office. Yep. So many great yep. ideas or, you know, strategic you know breakthroughs come from, you know, those chance conversations where somebody walks past your desk that's not working a project and says, oh, have you thought about this? Or mm -hmm. why don't you speak to that person? And because we're now in a more regimented diary, we have meetings where mm -hmm. we, you know, or calls where we, we talk about the thing that we've been told to talk about and then we say goodbye and that's it. We're at risk of losing some of that serendipity. So doing things like you've just described, just collectively changing the scenery, having a bit of a walk around, yeah. doing something different, shaking it up a little bit. It's really important that we keep hold of that. And, and, and getting out of your category is, is yeah. so powerful because things just seem so obvious. When you're chatting to somebody in a different category and they go, how on earth would you tackle this? You go, oh, in my category, it's this, you know, and you go, yeah. oh, it just seems, it, it, it's like, you know, we have a lot of beliefs and constraints, don't we, that we kind of work within that don't exist in other categories. And sometimes, you know, you look at them and you go, oh, it's really obvious now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just step that, outside. That's right. I think there was, uh, again, some research in the book that I think the three professions were ice skaters. So it's very kind of random, this ice skaters, welders, and I think the other one was, let, let's say, carpenters or something like that. But they were anyway, three completely different professions. And they were asked to create uh, safety gear for, the, for themselves and uh, also for the others. And what was interesting was that each profession was, w came up with better ideas for the other careers than for their own. Because, you know, they, yeah. if, if, you were, if you were in that trade or that profession of sport or whatever, you assume all the rules that you've been mm. told. Whereas you, if you come out from a different perspective, you're more likely to say, why don't you just do what we do in this world? And mm. which is, you know, do X, Y, Z. That, that, that is why so many entrepreneurs that succeed come without category yeah. experience. Very yeah, often, right. because they're, they're, they're not encumbered by the X number fail, this is how we do it. You know, that they, they see it completely fresh. We, we've yeah. just started working, as for the second time with, um, in my case, with, uh, with Virgin Atlantic, and of course that you know that's a crazy idea that was you know Branson when he started that airline had literally no experience of you know doing anything other than music he was a record label boss and mm. so that was really sort of out there at the time but of course that was precisely what made him brilliant at it because he didn't come with all the preconceptions of um existing sort of uh, service companies and, and airlines yeah no I, I i love what Branson's done it's just it's phenomenal really but, but he he, he epitomises doesn't it that idea of going outside your category looking at yeah. it completely fresh and, and and then mixing it up you know yeah. and not and also not fearing failure I mean he, he I mean man there's so you know 
the fact that he's got himself to space i mean just like yeah. you know talk about you know impossible is nothing we've got three to go so you're left with one eight and ten let's do ten then ten all right okay so we, we we're gonna we're gonna get back this is lucky bags so we're gonna hook back okay. around to our first conversation which was yorkshire tea because yorkshire tea also own a coffee brand don't they tailors yep. of harrogate and it took them a while to do this didn't it but you you turned their perhaps what we might be perceived as 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 uh, slowness could i describe it or you know time they took to get to this idea you actually turned it into an advantage didn't you yeah, so they, they had created some coffee bags that, uh, that they were very excited by. It's quite a technical feat without going into the boring reasons. It's miles harder to make coffee bags than it is just to make tea bags. And people have tried and failed over the years and they, they don't really exist. You, you might have experienced them once or twice, but people don't tend to think that, that they're any good. So they've never really taken off. But, but actually, finally, Yorkshire Tea had, or Taylors had, had perfected these coffee bags. So they're obviously very keen to tell everyone about it. And we all bounced back from the, the factory you know, to tell the creatives. And, and it was quite depressing because we were sort of met by <laughs> an absolute indifference from this young creative team. They said, yeah, but isn't it just, isn't, aren't they just tea bags with coffee in them? And we went, no, 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 it's actually much harder than that. You've got to listen to all this technical detail. And they've said, yeah, but I mean, it's still a bit weird that it's taken them so long to think of that. And in, anyway, sort of cutting to the chase after lots of rounds trying to persuade them that no, actually these are you know masterpieces of in innovation, which they really are if, you, if you're in that business. We sort of, together with the client who were fantastic about this, we said, you know what, maybe they're right. Maybe that is what people are going to say um, we think they're brilliant because of course we know how technically difficult it is but most people are just going to say what took you so long and that that actually became the idea then we we liked this idea that we would ask why haven't we thought of them before mm. and then we created communications that were very funny coming up with all these moments in history where we'd where people had tried to come up with the idea and then and then they'd basically been killed you know they'd fallen out of trains or you know, out of hot air balloons or all sorts of other things that happened to them over the years, the way through history, until finally we, we managed to come up with them in, in the present day. And again, I suppose that's sort of, that's realising, you know, that somebody amateur can, you know, somebody that doesn't know about your category can be really helpful, you know, because most of the time we're not talking to experts. So um, talking to someone who's got a sort of naive view and the perspective, in this case, the sort of young creative team, was incredibly helpful because because we're all at risk of just living in our own little bubble, aren't we? And sort of mm. thinking that the thing that we are about to promote is the most mm. important thing on the planet. There's another interesting angle in your story, actually, which, which if I think from a System 1 point of view, we, we do innovation testing. And we often advise people to do what we call fluent innovation, which is make innovation feel familiar. And we, we often say to people, the, the right ratio is 80% familiar and 20% new. Because actually, psychologically, most of us avoid f failure. You know, we avoid making a bad choice. And of course, you know, the reason brands exist is to reassure us that we're making the right choice and good choice. Yeah. And actually, the mistake that we find in testing innovation that most people get wrong is they try and build too much novelty into the idea. Yeah. So although like creatives would look, at, would look at a really cool new idea and go, oh man, this is just the best thing ever. Our advice actually is often the reverse, that your reaction you described is actually weirdly quite an encouraging one because people go, oh, it's just tea bags with coffee. So what you've done is you, you've taken a concept that everyone's hugely familiar with, which is tea mm. bags, and then and then blended it with something that is also familiar, which is coffee. So, yeah. so weirdly, sometimes the most successful innovation, and actually what our advice we often give people is, 
the more radical the technology, the more you should build familiarity into it. So like Uber is a good one where actually Uber is a revolutionary you know, app. But what they do is they have maps in there that we're all familiar with. They have five star ratings, which are like TripAdvisor. When all that does is give that sense of, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. This is yeah. my usual map. This is my the name of my driver. So and so has rated it. And then suddenly what might be scary has suddenly become, you know, has reduced the you know the, the barrier down so so I, I look at that innovation and i smile because i think that really does tick the boxes of it's not exciting or revolutionary but actually it's probably successful because it's it's doing something that people probably assumed existed for years yeah and, and you know and therefore it's just gonna be one of those things that sells you know sells well because of it very much actually it sold out that was our, our only problem it sold so well that they, we had to pull the campaign um you know, because Did you? Oh, out, I love it. Is, I think my household alone probably constitutes quite a big chunk of that. I'm absolutely addicted to them now, so it's great. It'd be like you know, 120 years of catching up we've had we've had yeah. to do, so we yeah. sold out. You know, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Brilliant. We're down to we're down to the final two here. So you've got a choice now between one and eight. I'm going to go for eight. We're going eight. We're going to end up at number one. This is yeah. good. So we are number eight. Lucky limitations. So this is, um, actually I've had Adam Morgan on the podcast actually, uh, in, in season one, so wonderful guy. And I love Beautiful Constraint. Yes. And it, in fact, the book meant a lot to me because I've spent a lot of my career under constraints of one mm. kind or another. And I love I loved how Adam reframes the question as we can if, which yeah. I think is a brilliant sort of catalyst for creative thinking, which he describes there. And, and, and you tell the story of your first client, I think as well, which is, a male cancer charity was that right that, yeah that's, that's right it was literally you know the the first i think on the first day we met this chap an incredible guy who without very much money at all was trying to yeah get people to, men to think more about male cancer so testicular bowel and prostate uh, cancer mm. and there there's sort of there was a huge number of bowels a lot of restrictions i mean number one was you just didn't have any money number two was that you know people feel uncomfortable talking about uh those kind of things you know especially blokes you know we don't like yeah. dwelling on those sort of subjects and then i guess three was just we're asked to do so many things for charity all the time you know there's a bit of charity fatigue generally setting in and and you know we could have given up at that point but we did unknowingly i say in the book you know we we sort of did what adam describes in that book perhaps intuitively and now reading that book again which i absolutely love like you um, i could see that we did apply sort of a we can if argument so we can get over the budget if we all work mm. together and rope in our friends and sort of pull in favors we just started as an agency so we were you know very keen to help and to you know really sort of work at it so that was that was doable we said and then we can get over the 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 sort of uncomfortableness that people have that blokes have if we use the right sort of tone of voice and we we don't make it all worthy and and actually we can even get over this idea that you know people have got charity fatigue if we if we just make the the, the thing that we ask people to do incredibly simple and so what we ended up doing based on all of that was to create some stickers that were in the shape of a sergeant's stripes that you could put on your arm and you could say, I'm going commando. And that would, you'd have this sort of, <laughs> these set of stripes on your, on your arm and basically you would go commando, so no pants for the day, which, which, which that is one less thing to do for charity. I mean, that is, that's actually making your life easier rather than you <laughs> have to do something boring for charity. So that's, that got rid of that problem. And it just, because it was quite colloquial and jokey and I'm going commando and it created a conversation because people would say, what's that on your arm? And then you could have a conversation about it. 
it got people talking about what is otherwise quite a problematic yeah. thing. It even because you're sort of without getting into the the anatomical details of it, it not <laughs> going commando for the day got people actually more conscious of what's down there and sort of checking yeah. themselves out and so on. So it was just like a really smart piece of work that was sort of largely driven by constraint again it was one of these ideas where mm. if we'd been given a huge budget we wouldn't have come up with something nearly as as uh, smart i don't think oh yeah so cool i i'd love to see more of that actually i mean you know i think quite rightly we've we've had lots of focus on women's issues haven't we and, and there's been lots of very bold advertising you know take womb stories at can this year last yeah. year viva la Volvo. you know the, the, you know the, there's, there's lots of taboo busting going on which is yeah. brilliant to see and and, and genuinely you know very it's welcome isn't it because we're, we're having conversations about stuff that's important that maybe we feared before i just wonder with men you know we're, we're, we're you know women are good at talking about stuff and we're not good are we yeah. and and so I think if we can, you know, borrow some of that bravery from the women, Definitely. you know, to have those conversations, I think that's great. I, I, I'd love to. That that's such a simple idea. That and, and I think um, a bit like Movember, isn't it? Something yeah. visible, like you've got yeah. the stripes. Yeah. You know, it, it is 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 what well, it's probably like social proof. Back to the Richard Shotton thing, isn't it? It's signalling. Yeah. To, well, it's signalling, not social proof. Isn't it? It's signalling to other people that you know you're doing that and gets a conversation going that would never have happened. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Be great to see that. Be great to see that back. Are you still working with them? At, at we did it for a little while, and then they we're still <laughs> in very good touch with them. They've gone on to do all sorts of other amazing sort of things since then. But it's a fantastically creative organisation. I think I, the, the last thing I saw them doing was floating an enormous testicle-shaped balloon somewhere or other, which was absolutely phenomenal. He's a very creative chap. This person who runs this, and yeah. Well, I remember there was that, there was that run. Was I? It was it the. I'm trying. I'm going to get the, the charity wrong. The the women's run where they they wear their bras over the top of their t-shirts. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. As well, isn't there? There's that yeah. one, which I just think is so clever because it's a really simple thing any woman can do. But it just the the the, the, the visual the signal that it gives is just amazing. So yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's really clever. And all for a good cause as well, which uh, makes it even better. Okay, so this takes us then to number one, rather appropriately, I think, ending on number one, which is Lucky Legacy and an inspiration from the past. So we said earlier, didn't we, that the the most boring category is also the most interesting category, Mm. which is bread. And it's funny, actually, because, again, going back to our System 1 database, the most titanic battle, probably, in terms of creative is Warburton's versus Hovis. You know, it's as easy as sliced bread or whatever, but actually there's there's some amazing creative that has uh, gone into that. And, you know, I love the story you told there about how you use the past for inspiration rather than rejecting the past. Yeah, companies are often feel that, you know, they, they, they don't appreciate their history enough. You know, this is one of the things that they should be more appreciative of how lucky they are if you've got a great brand history and that's not to say that you should use it you know literally but it can be something really interesting to learn from I think and when we worked in Hovis which is quite a while ago now we were we were told you know they were in a real difficult problem Warburton's were absolutely hammering them and they were about to be delisted actually which would have been you know just extraordinary for a brand like Hovis and so we were told by a new CMO a guy called John Goldstone said you know I don't care what you do just we have to get out of this you know situation and you're gonna have to do the ad campaign of the year and you know I'm gonna have to do all sorts of product things but first of all you need the you know an amazing campaign and and we said okay do you mind if we sort of have a little look through your archives and he said yeah everyone else will hate that idea because it's you know the one thing that we're told not to go near is history because the whole <laughs> brand's problem is that we're seen as being old-fashioned but frankly if you think you know if you think the answer is there you know 
go for it, be my guest sort of thing. I doubt it sort of thing. But And actually, we did find they had this amazing history. They'd done so many things over the years to help the nation. You know, they'd bought Spitfires during the war and, you know, they'd fed, you know, poor kids and, you know, helped nutrition in the 20s and the Depression, stuff like that. And we said to John, and he was incredibly supportive of it, you know, let's... We, we don't have to be rooted in the past, but we need to understand what made them great there. And we can take an old line they had. So they had this famous old ad that everyone knows now, you know, the Ridley Scott boy in the bike, which is shot in, shot in sort of sepia tones. And they had this line at the end of it, which was as good for you today as it's always been. And we said, let's just chop out two words for you because we don't want it to just be about health because they sell a whole bunch of other things, including white bread now. But let's make it as good today as it's always been that that sounds like a brilliant hovis line that you could imagine on one of those gable walls so there's going to be lots of built up sort of equity there as good today as it's always been and let's let's have another boy to build on that equity but let's not put him on a bike let's have him running through the past right up into the the present day so yeah we we deliberately embraced some of the things that were so famous i mean it is one of the most famous ad campaigns of all time that ridley Mm. scott thing um but let's literally moved the brand from Victorian times so this little guy ran with a loaf of bread under his arm through the Titanic you know mm. the the first world war the second world war the depression mass immigration the miners strike the world cup through the millennium fireworks and right up into the current day it was an epic a really sort of uplifting spot that that hit the nation just as we went in the banking crash and the recession and also the rest of it, everyone was miserable and this really captured the the hearts of the nation it was voted not just the ad of the year it was the british public's favorite ad of the decade and we won the ipa grand prix it was the fastest growing bread brand of the year uh, fastest growing grocery brand of the year all the rest so it was it was an absolute smash hit just because we were lucky enough to have a client who said okay if you think history might be helpful rather than a hindrance go for it have a little look which That's i think wonderful. is such a lesson it is interesting enough actually i think last year at system one we we retested boy on a bike 46 years later right and it it's five star it's in the top it's in the top one percent of our database and and that just shows the power you know 46 years later the power that 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 still has today and you know we 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 like to think everything changes but things change a lot less in that sense than 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 we think that's that's you know i think that's a really good lesson because when when we were working on it, all the previous advertising since Boy on the Bike and had been desperately again trying to show the target audience it was family, you know, modern non-nuclear families or you know uh, students in sort of cool, youthful, you know, house shares and you know making toast and things like that. The whole the whole uh, semiotics was supposed to be you know cartoon families and things like that. It was all very much you know we're not old-fashioned anymore. We're modern. We get you. We're like mm. you. But it just none of it was landing because it didn't feel very mm. obvious. And I think you can you can embrace history in a really modern timeless way you know i think they should be going back to that line again you know as good today as, as it's always yeah. been and embracing that history but in a cool modern way you know, think about what we're all watching on netflix we're all watching you know lots of you know films and series that are set in an, a bygone era but are still done you know peaky blinders and all the rest of it in an yeah, incredibly modern and cool way that, and yeah. yeah we're fascinated yeah. by it and for a bread brand that is good you know yeah uh, this is it. I think uh, this is something else we often recommend to people system one wise is it's it nostalgia is what everyone seems to want to get away from. But actually, what we actually we've seen an increase in the last year of how well nostalgia does in advertising, because mm. actually what the disruption and change that we've all been through an experience and the separation has actually meant that the power of nostalgia is even greater 
yeah. today, which is counterintuitive because we've got yeah. things are changing more than ever. We need to go faster. Yes. Actually, sometimes going back to what's familiar and nostalgic is is actually is what people are deep inside missing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So listen, last question then, and the obvious one: if people want to get lucky, where can they find you? So you can find uh, the book on all the usual places obviously Amazon because they're a client but Amazon <laughs> Waterstones all the usual and I, I should also say that all the royalties are going to an organisation called Commercial Break that help working class kids get a lucky break into the um, industry so you're not you're not lining the pockets of an old advertising guy uh, you're doing uh, good work for a really good cause very good so just to uh, remind you the book is called Go Luck Yourself so look that up on Amazon get a copy all proceeds go to a very worthy course and it's been a real pleasure thanks mate uh, thanks for sharing you. all that it's been been good fun and uh, look forward to seeing where the luck takes you next yeah thank you very much for having me on good luck everyone thank you everybody for listening to the episode with Andy Nan. I hope you're going to go out and find your own luck now and be super successful after listening to this I'd love you to give me a review so please go on to Apple, Apple Podcasts and uh, give me a rating and leave me your comments you can also follow me online I can be found at Twitter Uncensored CMO and also via LinkedIn with John Evans do get in contact and I look forward to uh, seeing you on the next episode thank you very much